2022, Team Milk came together by sponsoring female marathon runners for the marathon in New York City. Today, they're more than 20,000 strong. In 2024, Team Milk is making an even bigger commitment to female runners and launching the only women's marathon in the U.S., designed for and by women. The inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. I think we can all agree the current political moment is fraught. But how does it compare to the other fraught political moments in history? It felt for a time in part of that decade like everything was falling apart. Young people against old people, anti-war violence, peace movement. I'm former U.S. Attorney Preet Bharara, and this week, presidential historian Doris Kearns Goodwin joins me on my podcast, Stay Tuned with Preet. We talk about difficult times in America's history and how its people overcame them. The episode is out now. Search and follow Stay Tuned with Preet wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Aaron. Before we get going, I want to give you a quick word from our sponsor, Squarespace. Squarespace is simply the best way to make a website, whether that website is a portfolio, a bakery, a podcast. That's right. Actually, we had a little side gig, Max and I, making a podcast for the Cleveland Browns. When we had to put up a web page for it, I thought, well, I kind of know how to make websites. I could do this. No, don't do that. Don't get down the sinkhole of trying to make a beautiful modern website yourself. It's going to take forever. Do it the official way with Squarespace. I had that website up in under an hour. It looked fantastic. It was customized exactly to my needs. Uh, I really recommend Squarespace, whether you're putting up the first website you've ever put up, or in my case, the 100th. The best part is once you get there, you can start building the website for free without even putting in a credit card. If you decide you're going to go for it, it's only $8 a month and you get a free domain if you sign up for a year. So go to squarespace.com, put in offer code longform, you'll get 10% off and support the show. Squarespace, build it beautiful. Here's our show. Hey, I'm Aaron Lammer of the Longform Podcast, here with my co-host, Evan Ratliff of the Longform Podcast. No Max Linsky of the Longform Podcast. First time ever yeah. without Max. Yeah. Max is away. He's in Cleveland right now, as I understand it. Yeah. It's a high-wire act with uh, with no, no place to fall. What could possibly go wrong? There's no net. <laughs> Aaron, what about the show? Who did you talk to for the show? Um, this was actually taped in Pittsburgh, um, thanks to the University of Pittsburgh Writers Program, headed by Jean Marie Laskus, who have always supported Longform and hosted this live event with Peter Hessler. Peter Hessler, who you probably know from The New Yorker, he wrote for many years about China. And he wrote a really interesting book called Rivertown about China, and he's now in Egypt. Hmm. He's also... Uh, well, I don't know about like right now at this moment, but he's based out of Egypt. Yes. He's gone from China to Egypt. That's pretty interesting. He's a man of many stories. I mean, yeah. he, he, he's been out of the USA his whole adult life writing. Wow. And we have one technical note yeah. on this particular episode. <laughs> technical note. Which is that it cuts off 
At a certain point? At a certain point. It comes to an end. Abruptly. At a certain point, the memory card on this mobile recorder was full. It was fed up, and it had it had enough. Uh, while we talked, it was great, and we'll have him back uh, for more of that kind of thing. Absolutely. Uh, Max, is, uh, Max will be back next week. He is uh, taping the Browns cast out there in uh, Cleveland. Yeah, check that out. A man of many casts. Aaron, do we have any sponsors this week? We do. Of course, MailChimp. I run my newsletter with them. You run your newsletter with them. True. Um, someone who's starting a new business or project or bakery or what have you uh, might need a mailing list. If you have under 2,000 people on that mailing list, it's free with MailChimp, which I would say is reason enough to give it a shot. Now here's Aaron with Peter Hessler, recorded live in Pittsburgh. Uh, I'm Aaron Lammer. This is Peter Hessler. Um, you've probably read his work. Uh, it is awesome. I apologize for my uh, somewhat grainy voice. I just came back from Vietnam, and I definitely have something wrong with me, and I don't know what it is. So, <laughs> you, You've spent time in Asia. What, what would you diagnose me with? Just <laughs> cold right now. I don't know. It looks serious, though. I mean, I... Uh, WebMD well, has me for typhoid is, fever. Fortunate this is <laughs> typhoid fever? Really? Yeah. Uh, is it pollution-based? I, I think it's something street food based is, is oh, my, my current based. guess. But okay, um, okay. let's actually talk. Th- that was actually um, one of the first times I had been to Asia. So I'm mm-hmm. interested in the first time you went to Asia. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that you taught English in China. Was that your first experience in Asia? No, I first went there in, in 94. Actually, I had, you know, after finishing college in the States, I went to Oxford for two years. And when I was done there, I was thinking that I wanted to join the Peace Corps, but I wasn't sure where I wanted to go. And and uh, I decided to travel home to the east. And so with a friend, I, we flew to Prague, and then we went by land from there all the way, ended up going all the way to Thailand, just, just picking up tickets as we went across Eastern Europe and, and Russia. And I, I really wanted to take the Trans-Siberian train. I really didn't want to go to China, actually, because <laughs> people had told me that China was really hard and, and it was difficult and it wasn't much fun. And, but it was at the end of the Trans-Siberian train. And so that's why I ended up with a ticket from Moscow to Beijing. Um, and it was a, a weird experience because I had never really thought about China through school or growing up very much. Um, but when I arrived there in 94, it just, you know, something about the place grabbed me. It just had this this real energy. You know, you could just tell that that, that things were happening. So I, I got interested. And, and at that point, I decided I wanted to go back. And so when I applied to the Peace Corps, I, you know, requested to be sent to China. Did, did you already have ambitions as a writer at that point? Were you thinking about writing about China? Yeah, I mean, I had planned to be a writer since I was probably in high school. Um, but my original plan was to be a fiction writer, and that was what I majored in in college. And and I didn't do, I didn't work for a newspaper or, or do any nonfiction. Um, and then I took John McPhee's seminar as a junior, uh, and that was the first time I started to think about nonfiction. And it just sort of developed naturally. And it was partly because when I was overseas, I started freelancing and. And, you know, I realized I could do that to pick up extra money while I was traveling. And then I, over time, I just kind of sensed that I was, it was my more natural form. I'm um, always curious because this is uh, freelancing in a very different time than now. Mm-hmm. Like, what did freelancing from China mean in the 90s? In, I mean, in fooling, you know, I mean, I was, I had freelanced from college on, actually, the end of college. But, uh, you know, and then when I went to the Peace Corps in 96, I was still freelancing a little bit. I wrote... I wrote several articles for the New York Times in there. And I mean, it was, you know, you'd send it in the mail. 
they couldn't call me even. You know, I would get a, I would get a, the mail back, and then we would fax. And to get a fax and fooling, I had to go across the river downtown to the post office. And, and that was the post office were like my biggest enemies in the town because <laughs> when I, like the first six months we were there, whenever I went to the post office, they would just make fun of us for our bad Chinese. And it, was, it just was a demoralizing experience. So I'd, I'd go there and get my faxes and send them. It was really a lot of work. And it was a lot of work for the Times. I was really impressed that they did that. And so I, that's how you'd submit the copy. How would you pitch a story? Sto- same deal with pitching? You just send them you know, a list of things you were thinking about? I had done a few stories for them by the time I went over there. So they sort of knew me. And so I, I think mostly I was sending them finished articles at that point. Um, not that many, but it was a few. And it, it helped me think about the future and, and think about writing. So it was important. And then you became an English teacher in China after that? Yeah. I mean, my my job there, same as, as, as Michael Meyer, who teaches here, we were both in the Peace Corps teaching English. And so we taught in teachers' colleges. They were training uh, uh, teachers to become, you know, teachers in uh, middle schools and mm-hmm. high schools in, in small towns in Sichuan province. Um, and so I was in a place called Fuling, which was about 200,000 people. But it, but it felt pretty remote because, you know, it was on the Yangtze River and the, you, you had to take a boat basically to get anywhere from there. Um, and most of my students were from the countryside. What kind of a perspective does teaching English give you sort of as a reporter? I mean, what kind of stories do you pick up as a teacher somewhere like that? And how does that those kind of narratives contribute to what you've written about since? Yeah, I mean, it was... And actually, when I arrived in Fuling, I was still thinking a lot about fiction. I remember, I, I think the last time I wrote fiction, the last time I wrote a short story was was my first couple months there. I wrote a story about, it was actually based on my brother-in-law, who was a cop in Missouri, and I finished I think it was a pretty decent story, but I remember finishing it and thinking, you know, there's a lot of stuff going on here. I should probably be thinking about, you know, China or about Fuling or about this place. Um, I think the, the main thing that teaching did is it really it really gave me a foundation and, and, and sort of a human basis to, for which to look at China. And, and it really has continued to be that for me, you know, even long after I finished. It's just when we first arrived, our, our, our Chinese wasn't very good. Um, the city didn't feel that welcoming because everywhere you went, you'd have just mobs of people, you know, because there were two foreigners in the city and people would gather around and, you know, say, hello, hello, or why go down or, you know, whatever. And it was just, it was a bit much, you know, and, and, the, the classroom felt like sort of a safe place, basically, a place where I had some sort of control. Um, the students were wonderful and worked very hard. These were kids who were mostly from very poor families. Um, they're, you know, many of their, their parents were even illiterate. You know, this was the first generation for most of their families to be educated. So they were really appreciative. So that, to me, it was, it was a very human way to start to see China. So I think, that, you know, I wrote about them, of course, in my book, but the most important thing for me um, from that experience was, was just sort of gaining some understanding of where this place, where people were coming from, you mm. know, what they, what experiences they had had in the past and where they were going. And this, this lesson is something I'm still processing all the time. I'm in touch with more than a hundred of them. And recently I was just corresponding with a bunch of them because I periodically will write them letters and, and, and even do surveys. And one of the kids I was corresponding with said, oh yeah, the year you taught me was a really, that was a really hard year for me. You know, it was really really terrible year because uh you know i i could only eat once a day um you know and it was i was just hungry all the time and tired and you know i, I could barely i didn't really remember this kid very well he wasn't a very good student and now i kind of understand why you know this is a 21 year old kid who's, who's eating once a day um and so these 
you know, these experiences helped me sort of orient myself with relation to where China had been and where it was trying to go. Hey, I want to pause things here for a second to tell you about our sponsor, Squarespace. I actually have some experience with Squarespace because I made my own site on Squarespace recently. Now, I'm uh, I'm not an, not an expert programmer, but I'd say I'm an intermediate advanced website putter-upper. And when I was asked to put up a site for our new podcast that Max and I do as a gig with the Cleveland Browns, I considered making my own, but I'm actually very busy and I don't really know all the modern stuff, how you get it on, to look good on an iPhone. I'm an, I'm an old school uh, website maker. And I thought, I need to make this simple and there was no better way to do that than putting it up with Squarespace. They give you a state-of-the-art incredible editor that allows you to put up a great great site for pretty much anything, a portfolio, a business, whatever you're doing, they probably have you covered. It's trusted by millions of people and some of the most respected brands in the world. So I knew that when I put this up for the Cleveland Browns, they would be happy with it. And they would also be happy because I was only charging them $8 a month. That's all it costs to have a Squarespace site. And you get a free domain if you sign up for a year. So what I think you should do is go to squarespace.com. You can actually start building a site without even putting in your credit card. But once you get to the point where you're like, yes, I want to put this website on the internet, then you're going to put offer code longform and you'll get 10% off your first purchase. Squarespace, build it beautiful. Thanks, Squarespace. Your support has meant a lot to us. Here I am back with Peter Hessler. I think there's sort of an inclination um, as an American or maybe just as an alien anywhere where you sort of uh, walk off the plane and you start thinking like, the Vietnamese people, blah, blah, blah. You know, you have this sort of idea to, to categorize people mm-hmm. and to try to uh, compare them to your own experience. And in your work, you've clearly uh, gotten past that and, and really um, tapped into a sort of, a, I think, a deeper understanding of, of people's lives. I'm interested in how you, you know, as someone who was getting followed around on the streets and had sort of mediocre language, what were the ways that you were able to sort of get that knowledge and, mm-hmm. and get past a superficial understanding mm-hmm. of the people you're interacting with. Mm-hmm. You know, it may have helped that I didn't have a lot of ideas about China. I mean, it was it was sort of a blank slate in my mind. Yeah. You know, I'd, I've always wondered about this because in some ways you want to be prepared and it's good to study a lot, and but you may also end up with some ideas before you get there. And I sort of approached Egypt the same way. I mean, I didn't really do a lot of reading about Egypt before I went there. And so I trying to focus on, I think as a, as a reporter, and I wasn't a reporter when we went to fooling, but I was thinking like a reporter or even like a sociologist, um, just trying to respond to what you see and what you hear and, and not, not be too, too uh, oriented by, by things you've heard from others or things you may have read. Um, be open to new perceptions of the place or of the people. Um, you know, the language, as you mentioned, that, I mean, that was a critical part of it was trying to improve that, you know, and that was something especially for the first year that I almost felt a sense of desperation about it you know if, if I don't learn this language first of all my life's going to be miserable here but also I'm just I'm not going to ever understand what's going on so I you know was working really hard at that and uh by the end of the year the first year I was you know starting to get pretty comfortable with it and and then and then things really began to open up as you started to write um pieces about China for the New Yorker which I think you did fairly quickly. How, how many years had you been in China before you started working? Well, I was in the Peace Corps '96 to '98, and then I was back in in the States for a short period, just a little more than half a year. And that's when I wrote the first draft 
of Rivertown. And so I went back very quickly. I went back to Beijing in early 99 just to try to freelance, basically. And and I freelanced for a little more than a year before I started to do things for The New Yorker. So I, you know, I guess it was pretty quick. It didn't feel necessarily that way at the time. I'm sure, I'm sure that a year felt pretty long at, at that, that juncture of your life. But I'm interested in, as you started to write these kind of more sprawling profiles for The New Yorker that really are a lot deeper than a New York Times piece that you're filing by fax mm-hmm. and post office, um, the subjects you cho- choose are quite interesting. Um, I wouldn't call them archetypal Chinese types. I'm thinking specifically of um, a profile you wrote. I think it's called Boomtown Girl. Mm -hmm. That was about one of your students who went to work for a factory in Shenzhen. I'm probably deeply mispronouncing Shenzhen. but um, And she's sort of an iconoclastic character. She sort of rejects many of the sort of status quo um, expectations of herself. When you're an outsider writing about a culture like that, how how do you consider like what's a good or bad subject and, and sort of is a typical person a good subject or is an atypical person a good subject? Yeah, I mean, I guess I don't usually think of it in those terms. It's more what grabs me, you mm-hmm. know, and, and in that case, I mean, she was my former student. She was somebody who had interested me from the time I was teaching. I actually started going to Shenzhen for the, the simplest of reasons, which was that I was working in China illegally and I had to go to Hong Kong every six months to get a new visa. And so it was cheaper to stop in Shenzhen and I would visit Emily and then and then I got interested in her story. And, but the thing that grabbed me, because there were lots of students I was in touch with and visiting, but that city really interested me because it was this sort of experimental place where they had tried new policies. And the other thing that really fascinated me was she was living in a, in a dormitory of a factory, was the culture of the girls who worked in the factory. And I think this was a thing at that point that people hadn't really focused on much. When they wrote about these migrants, they weren't really full-figured people. They didn't have interests. They didn't have desires other than the economic things. And I was interested in the radio shows that she listened to and the books that she read. Because I think that humanizes people, just like we have, you know, things that we do outside of work or, um, you know, they, they, they had the same needs, the same desire. And all these influences were helping her create sort of a new worldview from, 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 from that of her hometown. What is someone who who is living in a dormitory and um, uh, has come to Shenzhen recently, what do they think about an American reporter who wants to spend time with them and, and ask them about their life? You know, I think people in China are sort of amazingly open to reporters. And, you know, to some degree, I found Egypt to be the same way. I mean, America may be more complicated, actually. I mean, I've worked here as a journalist and Americans can sometimes be be more wary of the press or, or more worried about you exposing their lives. Um, a lot of times in China, the people I was writing, somebody like Emily or some of the other people I wrote about in factory towns, um, often they were migrants. These are people who are far from home. They're outsiders. Um, maybe they don't have a lot of contacts yet. They're interested to talk to somebody. You know, nobody's asking them about their story. Um, so I, I think often they're willing to talk. And, and maybe it has something to do with this particular moment in China where people have, they have been challenged by a lot. They've seen their world change dramatically and, and they may be more open as a result to kind of processing this through your questions and, and through the things that you're interested in. And when they see that you're sincerely interested in their lives, I think sometimes they respond positively. I've always, I've always been impressed by the generosity in that, in that sense. 
So when you have sort of the subject of a story like that, and, and a lot of, I think, your work sort of works on multiple levels like this, where you have a human subject, and then the city of Shenzhen is very much a character in the story and the sort of human migration and the lives people live there. How do you start researching sort of the flip side? Like there's a lot of information there about the history of the special economic district and, and the dormitories and the companies and the bosses. How do you... I mean, fact-checking is the wrong word, but how do you start working from the other direction back to the human story? Mm-hmm. In that case, I guess I was just, you know, talking. I, I had a, f- you know, a couple friends who, who who were in academia, and they knew somebody who had researched that area, and I found his dissertation and, and read that, which was very helpful. I think I referred to him in the article, especially with these places like Shenzhen, which is not ancient history. is not really what you're looking at. It's more modern history. And so you do have a fair number of academics who would who had gone over this. And so I tried to make use of those sources. Um, and then also, of course, talking to all different types of locals, you mm-hmm. know, and, 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 and you're picking up details from them and things that, you know, things that you might not get out in, in a book or an article. How do, how do you cultivate when you're in a, I mean, you spent a long time in China, but you've kind of started over again in Egypt. When you're starting from scratch, how do you cultivate the people that, that might be interesting people to talk to for your stories? I mean, I guess I'm not that good at that. I mean, this is, you know, the whole idea of sources, which is sort of critical to journalism. I feel like I never really have them, you know, like, because when you have sources, this is more for people that write about all kinds of stuff. And they know people like if if something happens in agriculture, I can talk to this person or, you know, if there's a protest in this province and I know somebody there and I've never had that kind of network, you know, because I tend to burrow deeply into one place or into one specific topic. And so maybe within that topic, I know people, but I always feel fairly unsourced outside of that. Um, but yeah, I, the, the thing that I always do, though, is stay in touch. Like that to me is really critical. And the people that I've written about, I, you know, I, I, I try to, to keep in touch with them. I'm as, curious as to like the form that that keeping in touch takes. So like, when a student of yours writes and says, hey, that was a hard year, I, I didn't mm-hmm. have a lot to eat, here's mm-hmm. what my life is like now, what do, you, what do you say back to them? Like, what's your end of that communication like? Yeah, I mean, with him, I just said, no, it's, you, know, I, you know, I was your teacher, and I, you know, I, I would never have known that at that time, and yeah. you know, I'm glad. That, and he would, he'd also written about how much better things are now and how mm-hmm. much happier he is, and so you know, I'm glad that things have, done, have, have, have gone well for me. I mean, that experience of keeping in touch with them has been really fascinating, because when I first... You know, I left Fooling in 98, and then 99, I was back in Beijing as a, as a freelancer. And I used to, in those days, people didn't have email, and they didn't have cell phones. And, and so I would write them, you know, like 100 of them, letters from the, the bureau and the Wall Street Journal. And I would ha- address all these things by hand in Chinese. You know, I just spent a lot of time on it, you know. And, and, and I would do this, you know, every six months, I would send all of them a letter, and then they would respond individually. And it wasn't because of any project. It was just to stay in touch. Um, but over time, things changed, and they got cell phones and, and email, and, and we sort of refined the system. And so now I actually have a, like a whole system set up where I have one student. He's Willie. I wrote about him a lot in, in, in my second book, in Oracle Bones, and he's kind of the networker. So you know, I write I write a letter, and then Willie distributes it to everybody. Oh, so everyone get everyone gets the same Christmas card from from you. Yeah, now. it's yeah. a semester. We do it in the semester thing, and then and then they write individually, and I'll respond to them individually. But Willie's, and if I ever need to contact somebody, I you know, I, I ask Willie, can you, you know, I need to talk to Mo Money, you know, and Willie will have me with Mo Money within hours. I mean, <laughs> I, you know, I, I do, I did a survey when I was doing this last piece with the New Yorker and I had like 30 students who responded and, and then there I realized there was a follow-up two questions I wanted to do. And so I, I get on with Willie and we, and within two days, you know, we could get all 30 students to respond to this, 
Um, so it's, a, it's, it's taken years. It started with those self, you know, those addressed envelopes, hand addressed envelopes. And, and now it's a, you know, pretty efficient system. Do you talk like about your wife and kids mm-hmm. with them and like being a reporter? Like, yeah. I'm interested in what, what would be interesting to one of your, um, former Chinese students about you? Yeah. I mean, they, you know, we talk about everything. I mean, I send them pictures, always send them pictures of, of my family and my kids. I tell them what's happening with my parents. Um, my sisters, you know, just the very human stuff. And I talk about what I'm writing. I mean, because they're, they're, they're very interested in that. And, and most of my books have been published there. And so they've read them. Most of them read them in English, but they've also read the Chinese versions. And, and so I, you know, let them know what I'm working on and, 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 and plans. And then they, they write, you know, about what they're doing in their lives. When, when you were living and working out of China, did you have relationships with Chinese reporters also? Not much, actually. You know, I think I would more now. Um, I'm in, I'm actually in touch with a fair number of them now in the last couple of years, even though I don't haven't lived there for a while. Um, I had a couple of reporter friends and I was in Beijing, but I wasn't in, in that in that close touch. I mean, you know, I had I had a pretty quiet social life and contact life when I was in Beijing, actually. You know, I was pretty much focused on what I was doing. And I tend to be working in the countryside and often in in sort of third tier factory towns. And, mm-hmm. and so my focus was always more there. And in those places, the reporters the ones I met didn't tend to be that interesting, I guess. We just didn't connect. Mm-hmm. You described um, being in a story as sort of burrowing into it. And um, when I was reading that story, uh, Boomtown Girl, about about this factory work in Shenzhen, I think the story covers from about when she's 21 to 24, I think, at the end of the story. Uh, how do you know when you're that deeply burrowed when to stop? Um, when to sort of let the yeah. thread of someone's life go? Yeah, no, this is a big issue, and it's it's a problem because you can drive the subject nuts. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> I think, was it Meyer, you always say you're a toothless vampire, this, this is Meyer's comment, I believe, that you're, you're sucking, you know, he's, that you're sucking and sucking and sucking, and, um, you know, and, 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 and there are moments when... Uh, when they ask, you know, what are you doing? Yeah, <laughs> you <know>? Please leave. <laughs> I mean, usually they're, you know, and especially when you, the one reason I like to, to write about people who aren't famous is because they're more patient and you get more time. And if you write about people that are well-known, this has to be a very efficient process generally. Um, and I don't tend to work that way for a lot of reasons. And, but if you're, t- if you're talking to somebody who, who hasn't been in the press a lot, they're going to be more patient generally. And so another example is I wrote about a pharmacist in South, in Southwestern Colorado. And, you know, he was somebody who hadn't been written about and the whole time he's like you know i don't really know what you're getting here i don't know if there's a story he's like i hope <laughs> i hope there's something here i hope this is worth your time um but you can keep coming keep hanging out around the drugstore <laughs> you know and so and that's often the way it is like you know and and what you're looking for i guess is often something that's kind of a plot turn or you know mm-hmm. and especially because you're not back reporting stuff that's hard like if you're back reporting like okay you you're writing about somebody who had some dramatic thing that happened in the, ba- in the past, and then you're you're getting the details. Then you, you know what the story is, right? Um, I didn't, didn't like doing that in China for one reason, because people aren't that great at telling you all the details, and they might leave out really important things. It's nicer to sort of observe as things are going. Um, and with Emily, it was when she left her job. Mm. And the reason, I mean, that worked for a number of reasons. One, because... At her job, she had sent somebody a death threat, and she had had, had fought with the boss. And so it was nice to have her out of that situation. Before. I was glad she was still alive at the end of the story. Yeah. So uh, you know that was that, that I, I felt pretty clearly like, well, this is where this part of her life, you know, is that this chapter comes to her natural end here. I think it's interesting that you um, cite sort of a plot twist because 
Um, and one of your more recent pieces that's um, about a trash collector in Egypt, there's this sort of turn in the narrative where originally it's about trash collection and then it becomes about um, divorce and the sort of um, Egyptian system of uh, reconciliation between mm-hmm. men and women and like the use of sex pills in Egypt. And I kept wondering like how many times the story might turn on its head if you've sort of found a different strand. Do you go down whole strands and then abandon them as you're constructing these stories? Yeah, I mean, you end up with a lot of extraneous information, you know, inevitably. I mean, this is just the nature of when you're, you know, when you're doing, I mean, that story, I I started talking, reporting and interviewing him in, I guess, 2012. And it wasn't until the end of last year that I published it. So you end up with a lot of stuff. And you you know, often it's not until I sit, it's almost inevitably not until I sit down and look at all the material and go through it all that I can understand what are the main things, you know, what, what's the real story here. Um, you can't always, you almost never can I see it while I'm in the middle of reporting. Is that something that you work with an editor on, or is this before it gets to an editor? It's before it gets to an editor. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. an editor's not like, whoa, I thought we were doing a trash collection piece. What's with all the Viagra? Yeah. <laughs> they can be like that, but it's, I try to do it as a fait accompli, you know, so that I just give them the story, and then that's it, you know? Yeah. I mean, like with the pharmacist piece, I didn't even pitch the story, you know, because I know that if you pitch a New Yorker a story about a pharmacist in southwestern Colorado, there's not going to be a lot of excitement about that piece. And so, you know, for projects like that, it's safer just to do it. And it was near my home, so it didn't require big investments in travel. So, I, you know, I told my editor that, that I was going to work on this, but that I thought we probably didn't want to pitch it to David, and to, to David Remnick, and my editor agreed. And so I just did it on spec. And so you kind of, each, each project is a little different in, in that way. But actually with the Trash Collector piece, I did tell my editor, Willing, Willing Davidson, that, you know, this is, this story's going in this direction. I think this is, you know, interesting. And he, he was like, yeah, that's great. You know, they, so, so he did know what he was getting there. How, how many pieces do you do on like a spec basis like that, as opposed to pieces that have been accepted before you start them? It depends, a fair number, you know, because it's, I just find it hard to do proposals. You know, I never liked the whole, I just found the whole, it's just like the query letters. I mean, people here are young writers and they do the query letters. I just found that just really demoralizing. <laughs> you know, when I, you just send these things off and nobody ever was interested and, and it's just easier just to do the whole thing. And I wrote my first booklet and every book I've done has been like that. I just write the book and then I send it to the publisher. I've never gotten a contract in advance. I mean, I know that you live in a foreign country and you have a child or children. Is that risky to sort of gamble on so many of the stories? Like, have you ever had like a losing streak where? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, sometimes it doesn't work out, you yeah. know, or I've had things killed, but it's not that, not that often. You know, the books kind of provide stability. And I researched my first book and while I was in the Peace Corps making $120 a month. So. If I can do that, you know, I can do anything the way I look at it. And so I just try not to worry about that. You've basically been outside of the U.S. for almost the entire time since you graduated college. Yeah, You're and the, and the other years. time was in Colorado, which is southwestern Colorado, which is outside of the U.S. <laughs> <laughs> is it, as, a, you know, as someone who reports to Americans about Chinese and Egyptian, have you lost a perception of what America is? Like, um, is, is it strange to have been an, an alien for so long? You know, it isn't. I mean, maybe I, I think I had like a very American background, really. I mean, I grew up in mid-Missouri. It's, I think that's as American as you can get. That counts. Yeah. I've got, you know, two of my sisters are married to cops. You know, I, 
I, uh, I go back a lot to see family. I have a foundation here and I keep in touch with, with things here. Even if I'm not here physically, mm-hmm. I still feel like that's a really strong part of who I am. And, and it was a big, you know, big part of my, my upbringing and my, you know, my childhood. When you're writing about, say, an Egyptian subject um, for a primarily American audience, how do you sort of calibrate what an American needs to know to Mm -hmm. understand what it is to be a garbage collector in Egypt? Mm -hmm. Um, It's not necessarily the same set of details you might include for an American subject. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I guess I try not to overthink it, to be honest. I mean, I, I think the bottom line is you just try to think of what's necessary to understand this story and not to think too much about Egypt or, you know, these sort of larger political issues and, and so on. I mean, if, you know, you do get, and sometimes that's where an editor will help. They'll say, we need an ID here. We need to know more about this. I, you know, I guess it's also just a sense you refine after doing it for so many years. You know, after, after writing about China for that long, I kind of get a, you know, you, 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 you have an instinct for what you need to explain and whatnot. And my, my, I try not to over-explain. That's basically it. I mean, I feel like the reader generally is not given enough credit. And, and they can go, you know, they can follow you farther than, 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 than you might expect. Um, you know, they're, they're, they're more willing to, you know, to go somewhere that's unfamiliar with them, unfamiliar to them. You mentioned politics there, and um, both of the countries that you've written primarily from uh, China and Egypt are places where politics are sort of inescapable from, from day-to-day life. Politics are sort of a backdrop to almost every element of the story Mm. on some level. I guess you could probably make the same argument about America, but um, it's glaringly clear in somewhere like Egypt that the day-to-day political shifts are are having an impact on people's lives. How do you write about a story um, that isn't primarily about politics? How do you keep politics in mind there? I mean, I know that you've uh, covered uh, the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt, but even in your other stories, it seems like it does play something of a Mm -hmm. role. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, and Egypt is a different place than China because in China I didn't write very much, I didn't write very directly about what was happening politically because I felt like that wasn't where the energy was. There were no big political changes. It was the same party in charge, basically the same set of ideas during the years that I was living there, whereas you had this incredible transformation in people's daily lives. and, And also there was no access to the political stuff. You couldn't go in and talk to the you know, to the leaders, whereas I could go and spend a lot of time with the factory workers. So it was obvious that that was my focus. But, you know, Egypt is quite different. Um, the politics are everywhere. They've been, you know, they've had a huge effect on on, on what's going on there. Um, people at various times were quite accessible. You know, you, there was a period when you could talk to these Muslim Brotherhood leaders, and I was fortunate to, you know, to meet a lot of them at that time. Um, and it's been a very strange experience. There's all these guys I met my first year there in the parliament building and, you know, running for office and in the presidential campaign. And then the last time I saw them, they were in like literally in a cage, in a, you know, on trial in a soundproof cage when I was there as a journalist. And, and that sort of experience is just, you know, is mind boggling. It's something that I never, never would have experienced in China. And it really makes you think as you try to process what's happening there. Um, so, you know, it, it has been a very different project. Um, but at the same time, I think it's really critical to have non, not indirect ways of looking at those political stories. And that's, that's, for example, one of the reasons why I got so interested in Saeed in The Garbage Man, because his story, I realized, and the story of his neighborhood and, 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 and his job, it tells us about a different side, the more informal side of life in Cairo, which is really important. And, and also something like Saeed, you realize he's like a lot of Egyptians. He's remarkably disengaged, you know. I mean, he voted for Morsi. 
and then he voted for Sisi, you know, which doesn't make any sense at some level. But to him, it makes perfect sense because Morsi was really popular and everybody was talking about him, so he voted for him. And then Sisi became really popular and everybody was talking, so he voted for him. You know, it doesn't really matter to him very much. That's, I mean, that's an interesting way of putting it. That is sort of like a street-level political reality in Egypt. When you're writing about something like the Muslim Brotherhood where you can hear sort of every manner of rhetoric about them from these guys are terrorists to these mm-hmm. guys are the saviors of Egypt to um, from around from both within Egypt and from around the world. What's your sort of political education as someone who's not like a dedicated politics reporter when you're sort of wading into that? How do you know that you're armed with enough knowledge? It was really hard. I mean, I think that I found that very stressful. You know, my first year there, I was a lot of things were happening. I mean, the first month I was there, they, it was sort of the big protest, the first post-Tahrir protest that really blew up. Um, that was in November of 2011. And, and then so I was kind of forced to address these issues. And it was the Brotherhood was a very hard organization to analyze. Um, you know, I found talking to people that were ex-Brotherhood people were was in some ways the most revealing. I felt like they kind of helped me orient myself. Because like ex-Scientologists. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> because I started to notice that the smartest people I talked to, the smartest Brotherhood members I talked to were ex-brother, were all ex-Brotherhood members. Like just the feeling, the most insightful, the most interesting. Huh. And that sort of, I started to think about the organization. And, you know, there were all these things that you heard about the Brotherhood, which was that it's a grassroots organization. It's very popular in Upper Egypt, outside of Cairo. And they, they provide a lot of services in areas where the government doesn't provide many services. And these were sort of repeated a lot in the media. And, and from living in China, I know that often this is a case where something gets said enough times and it becomes truth. And you have to sort of investigate it. And so when Morsi was president, I was, I was doing a lot of research on archaeology in Upper Egypt. Um, and one of the main reasons I was doing that is archaeology is a good way to get into a community actually because you can just say oh, i'm at the archaeology site with you know dr matthew or whoever and 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 then you're cool with the you know the mayor and everybody else in the town will talk to you uh, it's kind of like it's a kind of cover you know you can spend more time there. i did the same thing in china but you have no actual interest in archaeology i have a lot of interest i have a lot of interest and archaeology has a lot of there's a lot of things it has to tell us about current sure. current current uh, events in egypt but it's it's a nice it's a nice part of that. And this is not a new idea. I mean, a lot of spies traditionally have been archaeologists. <laughs> seriously, I mean, like yeah. in Egypt, there's been a long tradition of this kind of overlap. Um, but so, so I was in the upper Egypt and I, and I said, you know, I got to, I want to, I'm curious about this idea about the brotherhood. So is there a systematic way to do this? Because otherwise you're just guessing, you know, right. and it's just whoever you happen to meet. So I, I said, okay, I'm going to start at the, the, the governor. It is like a province or a state in Egypt. So I'm going to start at the governor level and go to the brotherhood office and I'm going to work my way down every level of office to this village of about 7,000 people where I'm researching. And so I went to the governorate and talked to them about what sort of activities do you have. And I, I get to the, you know, the, the, uh, the markas um, and, and then the next level and so on. And the first thing I noticed is that everything that they told me at the up next level did not turn out to be true when I went to the lower next level about like how many people they had, did, how many offices. Did they not they know you were going to keep um, no, trickling I mean, down the wall? Yeah, no, they're not. You know, they're just telling me, so I'm getting that, and then I'm working my way down. And the other thing I realized was that there was nothing at the local level, absolutely nothing, which was shocking to me. They told me there was. And then I went back to them after, and I said, you know, I didn't find an office in Ambados. Where is it? And finally I said, oh, we were, we're planning to open one. It's not open yet. <laughs> And 
and that was the long form podcast thanks very much to peter hessler i apologize the tape recorder ran out of digital memory at that point so we lost the rest of that interview however peter hessler you are invited back on long form we will pick that conversation up where it left off my co-hosts are evan ratliff and max linsky this episode was live at the university of pittsburgh part of their writing program they have been supporters of long form from the beginning it's run by Jean marie laskis who is a fantastic writer a fantastic teacher and a fantastic person you can check them out if you go on long form in the sidebar there's a link if you're thinking about educating yourself as a writer i recommend it uh let's see this was edited by jenna weiss berman our intern was molly bain our sponsors were squarespace and mailchimp we'll be back next week Thank you.